0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Namaste. I'm very delighted to be able to host this gathering tonight. My name is Francis Xavier Clooney. I'm a member of the faculty here at Harvard and very much uh, supportive of this wonderful program and our wonderful visitors this year. And I'm very grateful for everyone accommodating the unusual, unprecedented situation in which we find ourselves tonight with a very small and very select audience in the room, Uh, very grateful to those who are able to be here in the room, and for our much larger audience uh, watching live online. In some ways, it's perhaps symptomatic of the very challenge of our topic tonight that we talk about Vedanta in the 21st century, not Vedanta in the first century, the 10th century, the 19th century, but the 21st century, not as we wish it would be, but as it is a world in which there are many dangers, many confusions, people moving around, violence, ecological degradation, all kinds of problems around us. And this coronavirus perhaps uh, is a symptom, a symbol for us of how frail and fragile our life is. And I think to be able to say, given the problems of our generation and the world in which we live, how important it is to be able to go back And to learn from the great traditions to which we belong and how appropriate it is now to be able to say Vedanta such an ancient tradition such a beautiful tradition rooted in the Upanishads rooted in the Veda rooted in texts like the Bhagavad Gita and thousands of years of lineages of teachers teaching us how to put our life in balance how to seek the path how to travel the path of learning and of education how to teach and to be students of generations to come, passing on the wisdom, and how to envision societies that have the wonderful mix of detachment and engagement in the world. And I think it's wonderful tonight that we can long distance, some in the room and many online, up take up and begin to explore this together. I told my class the other day I'm teaching a course on the Bhagavad Gita, a wonderful course that some people in this room are in and that uh, we should be a little bit heartened by the Gita. After all, it was Sanjaya in the Gita with the King Dhritarashtra, who from a distance, seeing with his television, is able to report everything that takes place. Uh, We're very grateful to Bob DeVoe and our technical people for being able to make us see things even at a distance in our time and place. So the panel we have tonight, I think, speaks to the topic, a very timely topic, of Vedanta in the 21st century. But as I'll introduce the speakers as we go along, it's also part of an exciting new initiative at Harvard Divinity School, a context in which a multi-faith divinity school, a divinity school that is deliberately, intentionally trying to enrich its learning, its teaching, by bringing different traditions from around the world together to be able to see on campus the presence of Hindu monastics, bringing their personalities, their individual wealth of knowledge, their wealth of experience, and also to enrich our lives by opening us to a way of learning, a way of thinking, a way of meditating that for many of us is is not so familiar. And to be able to see this program tonight as the wonderful program we had back in November as a sign of how blessed we have already been in the Harvard community to have such wonderful people on campus with us uh, for this time. And we're looking forward, this is a, um, I guess, off-the-record comment, that we're looking forward to another group of wonderful monastics next year, and that we have uh, fine applications, and we're hoping to continue the program as best we can, and then build it the year after the year after the year after. So I think something new for some of the communities who are represented here tonight, but also new for Harvard Divinity School to have this commitment and lineage of Hindu wisdom present on campus. So as we move forward, I will, in a moment, introduce the speakers one by one as they speak. They will have about 15, 18, 19 minutes to speak each. And then after all of them have spoken, Professor Rambachan will respond to them, and I'll introduce him later. And then we'll have time for questions and answers, Uh, comments from the, the audience here, and then maybe a few that have been texted in and brought to us online. But before I get to the first speaker, I'd like to just um, do two things. One would be a word of thanks. Um, And if I wanted to thank everyone who made this event possible, both the original conception of hundreds of people in the room and the downsized version of it that we have here tonight, I would be at it for 20 minutes thanking people who have made this possible. I'd like to begin by thanking our dean, David Hempton, our executive dean, Kristen Anderson, for their constant support and backing what we do here. It's been so important right from the start. Our co-sponsor, the Center for the Study of World Religions, has, again, been patient and helpful to us along the way. Uh, Director Charles Stang, Associate Director Corey O'Brien, have been extremely helpful. The Office of Administrative Affairs has been helpful at every stage. Uh, The Office of Financial Aid the Office of Communications. And again, I praise Bob DeVoe for making all these magical things happen here tonight. And Sue Reuther at the uh, making the room so beautiful and helping us to have everything set up so nicely, operations, uh, doing things that we take for granted but should not take for granted. But particularly, I'd like to thank uh, two groups. One, the Development Office, who have been my great friends in this uh, pilgrimage and saga over the past uh, few months. Uh, including especially Sheila Dennis, uh, Susanna Lutz, who's here helping out tonight, uh, Nancy Byrne, who's been a great supporter and strategist on how we do these things here, and the indefatigable Daimi Seung, who um, seems to be able to, with endless energy, help things move forward. So I'm very grateful to all of you. And then I'd like to have a personal word of thanks for Vibu Nigral, um, who has made this program possible with her husband Ajit right from the start. To have this possibility, this new possibility at Harvard this year could not happen without Vibhu and Ajit. So, thank you very much for your constant support and friendship to us here at Harvard Divinity School. And then, finally, for me, um, we were going to have a beautiful group of undergraduate musicians uh, to um, sing for us at two points in the program. Due to complications in the college, again related to the virus, they were unable to be here tonight. But I thought it would be appropriate to begin with a recitation of a Sanskrit text, and then I'll read the English translation. It's the ancient Kena Upanishad, one of the most beloved of the Upanishads for Vedantins. And I ask that Swami Sarvapriyananda would chant for us the Sanskrit, and then I will read simply an English translation of the same, and then we'll be underway. So Swami, if you would begin.
1: Om apyayantumamangani vāk prāṇas cakṣuṣro tramatho balam indriyāni ca sarvāni sarvam brahmha upaniṣadam maham brahmha nirākūryām mahmā brahmha nirākarod anirākarana mastu anirākarana mestu tadātmani nirateya Upanishat sudharmāt Temai Santu, Temai Santu, Om Shanti, 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 Om shantishantishanti. Om ke padati yuktaha ke ne vadanti. Jakshu shrotram kaudeva yunakti. Shrotras yashrotram manasoma yad. Vacho havacham so pranasya pranaha. Chakshushas chakshura timuchyadhiraha. Prithya asmaad loka damrita bhavanti. Natatra chakshur gachatin avag gachatinomanaha. Navidmon avijani mo yataita Anyad evatad vidita da toa vidita da di. It yena stadbya chachakshire yadvācānabhyuditam yena vāgabhyudyate tadeva brahmhatvam viddhine idam Upasati, upāsate yanmanasāna manute yena matam tadeva brahmhatvam viddhine idam yatidam upāsate yatcakshuṣana paśyati yena cakṣuṃ Pashati, tadeva brahmhatvam viddhine idam yatidam upāsate Yad shrotrin and a shrinoti, yen a idam shrotrum, Tadeva bramhatwam vidhini, yadidam yadidham upasati, Yet pranin praniti, yena prana prani Tadeva bramhatwam vidhini, dham yadidham upasati, Iti kin openishadi prathava Om shanti shanti shanti.
0: By whom impelled, by whom compelled, does the mind soar forth? By whom enjoined does the breath march on as the first? By whom is this speech impelled with which people speak? And who is the God that joins the sight and the hearing? That which is the hearing behind hearing, the thinking behind thinking, the speech behind speech, the sight behind sight. It is also the breath behind breathing, Freed completely from these, the wise become immortal when they depart from this world. Sight does not reach there, neither does thinking or speech. We don't know. We can't perceive. How would one point it out? It is far different from what's known. It is farther than the unknown. So we have heard from people of old who've explained this all to us. Which one cannot express by speech, by speech itself is expressed. Learn that that alone is Brahman, not what they hear venerate. Which one cannot grasp with one's mind, by which they say the mind itself is grasped. Learn that that alone is Brahman, not what they hear venerate. Which one cannot see with one's sight, by which one sees sight itself. Learn that that alone is Brahman, Not what they hear, venerate. Which one cannot hear with one's hearing, by which hearing itself is heard, learn that this alone is Brahman, not what they hear, venerate. Which one cannot breathe through breathing, by which breathing itself is drawn forth, learn that that alone is Brahman, not what they hear, venerate. Om Shanti. I am happy and privileged to introduce our first speaker tonight, Sadak Akshar, whose guru is Mahant Swami Maharaj of the Bap Swami Swaminarayan Samstha. Akshar was born and raised in Gujarat in India. For the past six years, he has been a student at the Bap Swami Swaminarayan Sanskrit Mahavidyalaya in Sarangpur in Gujarat in India, a college of Somnath Sanskrit College. He has specialized in Vedanta and the Prasthana Trayi and has received both his BA and MA in Swami Narayan Vedanta. Remaining steeped in the traditional learning and teaching style of a seminary has transformed his thinking and helped shape his perspectives on religion, theology, history, philosophy, and other topics broadly related to academic life and to personal life as well. During the past six years, he has also learned as well as taught Sanskrit texts, including the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. These are the texts he is primarily interested in, in addition to the vernacular scriptures of Swami Narayan Sampradaya, including the Vachanam and the Swamini Vato, and the scriptures and practices of other traditions as well. When he is not studying, he enjoys participating in and helping organize the many Hindu festivals that occur during the year. After this year at Harvard Divinity School, he plans to join the Swami Narayan Seminary in Sarangpur and embark on the final stages of his monastic training. So let us welcome Akshar to speak.
2: Thank you. Gunati toksharam Brahma, Bhagavan Purushottamaha janojanan janan idam satyam mujyati Vedanta for the 21st century It was the beginning of the 21st century and the UN had organized a world peace summit. Pramukh Swami Maharaj, the guru or leader of the BAPS Swaminand Sansa had given a speech in his address for peace. He cited key verses from the texts important to Vedanta, Isha Idam Sarvam yatkincha Jagatyam Jagat. In everyone and in everything, there is the divine presence of God. This spiritual unity connects us with the entire creation. Hindu traditions, in this way, often recall and identify with verses from the canonical texts of Vedanta school. Today. I would like to dive deep into one tradition, the tradition from which I am coming, the Swaminarayan tradition, and describe in detail how the tradition interprets the canonical texts of Vedanta, namely the Upanishad, the Brahma Sutras, and the Bhagavad Gita, and its relevance in the 21st century. I will start by situating the Swaminarayan tradition within the Vedanta school. Then, I will discuss how this Vedanta might provide answers and guidance for questions that we all face in daily life, contemporary questions. Third, lastly, I will talk about questions that's important perhaps for all religious traditions, how mukti or liberation is conceived of. We will look at all these three things through the lens of Purushottam Darshanam. First, there are seven Vedan schools each have different ontologies and theologies. For instance, the Advaita Darshan expounded by ji posits one entity, Nirgun Brahma. The school founded by ji, called Vishishtadvaita Darshan posits three ontological entities, Chit, Achit, and Sagun Brahma. Similarly, there were other commentators in the Vedanta school who proposed their own unique interpretations. In the 19th century, Parabrahman swami Swaminarayan revealed the theology consisting of five different metaphysical entities, namely jiva Ishwar, Maya, Brahm, and Parabram. According to swami Swaminarayan's teaching, Bhadar Swami recently wrote classical Sanskrit commentaries on the three canonical texts of the Vedanta. The Bhashya texts he wrote collectively form the corpus of Aksha Purushottam Darshan. Let's now discuss in detail how these texts might be relevant today. Every day, we, face, we might be faced with many questions, such as interpersonal conflict, a lack of confidence for one's goal, self-doubt, a desire for others' validation, mental stress, and others. Now we will see that how these texts respond to the persistence of these problems? What remedies do they provide? There is one analogy in particular that comes to my mind when I think about this kind of questions, Arjun's analogy. We will look at Arjun's situation from the Bhagavad Gita and look how Krishna answered his questions. In the beginning of the first chapter, Arjun says, Senayor Ubayor Maddi Rathamshapa mechyuta O Krishna, please draw my chariot between the two armies. Once, when Arjun was between two armies, situation changed. What happened? Arjun describes his situation in the first Adhyay. Siddhanti Mamagatrani, Mukhamcha Parishushyati, me, Roma Harshashaja Jayate, Gandhi Vam Sransate Hastat. Tvakcaiva paridahiyate na ca shaknomi avasthatum pramati manaha. Arjun says that sidanti mamagatrani, I feel the limbs of my body quivering and mukham cha parishushyati and my mouth drying up. My whole body is trembling. Moreover, gandivam sansate hastat, gandiv, my bow, is slipping from my hands. It was the same hands by which Arjun was able to pierce the eye of the fish looking at the reflection of it in water while standing on a scale and balancing himself. Such a concentrated, skilled, experienced and trained warrior became, in this situation, unstable and unable to access any of the skills that he possessed. Then after he says, shakno mi I am now unable to stand here any longer. I am forgetting everything. Arjun, the warrior, in the second Adhyay, is crying. Tam tatha Arjun, a strong warrior, was crying in front of 3.9 million soldiers. A question we might ask is, how difficult must this situation have been for Arjun to have cried? I expect he wasn't an emotional person. But this situation broke him mentally, physically, and emotionally. Mentally, because he was unable to contemplate his duties. Physically, because he was unable to pick up his bow and unable to stand. And lastly, emotionally, because tears have filled his eyes. This situation of Arjun is in the first Adhyayi of the Bhagavad Gita. Let us fast forward hundreds and thousands of years and come to the present situation in the 21st century, the questions which we face now. Because Arjun's problems mirror some of the ones that we face in daily life. We face stress. We also face uncertain situations. We also have to make difficult choices. We also feel less certain of ourselves in many situations. Sometimes we face self-doubt and sometimes we cannot lean on the ones closest to us. When Arjun was faced with similar questions, his wealth, family, friends weren't able to help him. Even his army, which was fully equipped with weapons, was unable to support him. Even his own strength was of no use as the problem stemmed from his mind. This was the situation of Arjun and the present situation which we might be facing. Now, let's briefly look at how Arjun was pulled out of this situation. The very first step which Arjun did was that he saw Krishna. But seeing alone isn't enough, he took refuge. In the second adhyay, what Arjun does is that Shishya steham prapannam. Krishna, you are my guru and I am your shishya, the disciple. But taking refuge isn't enough either. One must listen to the person one has chosen to take refuge in. Throughout the rest of the Gita, Arjun does just this. He listens to the discourse of Krishna. At the end of the 18th chapter, Arjun says, my illusion is now gone. I have regained my memory by your mercy. And I am now firm and free from doubt. And am prepared to act according to your wish. This is the situation of Arjuna in the 18th chapter. After listening to the discourse of Krishna. So what we see here is that Arjun, in the first adhyay who was broken, completely broken, who was unstable mentally, physically, and emotionally, who was deviated from his goal, like 180 degrees. He was, in fact, resisting to perform his own duties. He was full of doubt. And in the 18th chapter, he is ready, strong, and confident. The external situations were the same. Something else changed. This change was brought about by the discourses that Krishna gave to him. And this might be what is relevant in the 21st century. The discourses which Krishna gave and the steps which Arjun took. We looked at some of the steps which Arjun took. Now we will look at the discourse which Krishna gave. Krishna said, Brahma-bhutah-prasannatma na na-kangshati samaha-sarveshu-bhuteshu Mad bhaktim Lapate param One who has become brahmarub, that is, one who has oneness with Akshar Brahm remains joyful, grieves for nothing, desires nothing, behaves equally with all beings, because he sees God in everyone. If one believes this, then one has an obligation to respect all, and that respect is unconditional. We do respect people, but such respect might not be constant. It may increase and decrease depending on the situation that the people are involved in. But this respect is different, which is born of the understanding that God resides in everyone. It is equal in its magnitude for everyone regardless of individual's gender, creed and caste. We looked at a few of the questions, contemporary questions and how the Vedanta answers them. Now having talked in some detail about some of these texts related to some contemporary problems that we might face, we can now talk about something that perhaps all religious traditions ask about, the Param purusharth Moksha or liberation. By some Hindu traditions there are four purusharths Dharma, Artha, Kama and Moksha. We will talk about the last one Moksha in detail. Upanishads. Upnishads primarily contain questions and answers. Questions are asked and answers are provided. Disciples seeks, seek guidance from their gurus. The Mundaka Upanishad has one question. It concerns our Brahma Vidya. For liberation, acquiring Brahma Vidya is necessary. So, what's the definition of Brahma Vidya? The Mundaka Upanishad says, that yena aksharam purusham satyam tam tattvato Brahmavidya, by which the knowledge of akshabram and parabram is attained is known as brahma vidya but now the question arises from whom we should attain this knowledge the upnishad says eva for the knowledge of brahma vidya one should go to guru so what are the characteristics of Guru? The Upanishad says, Shotriyam, Brahma and Nishtham. Shotriyam, knower of the true meanings of the revealed text, Brahma, who is Akshar Brahma himself, and Nishtham, who is firmly as attached with God, always. So what we saw from the Upanishad is that to attain liberation, we should attain Brahma Vidya. And for it, we should go to a Guru, who is Kshotriya, Brahma, and Nishtha. Having met the Guru, what is the sadhana or means to attain liberation? The Upanishad says, eva ivagnanam, Vartanam Deharpanam tathabhaktau, Brahmat mekyam It's the summary that aligning our jnana, that is knowledge, action, that is karma, and bhakti with guru, by doing so, one becomes Brahmarup. And this being Brahmarup can be of two different types. Jivan mukti, being liberated while alive, and videha mukti, that is after that. So we saw the importance of the guru. In the Swaminarayan tradition, the guru is particularly important. The pragat guru. The concept of pragat guru is important and interesting. Interesting, because it's like divinity in humanity. Guru is among us, but still above us. And important, because having attached with Guru, you uh, people get liberation. The pragat Guru is Akshar Brahma. The relevance of Guru is, however, not just that Guru is the manifest form of God. The Shastras contain knowledge. However, one thing is still needed. Someone who facilitates the imbibing of that knowledge. When I think of the relevance of the Upanishadic Guru or Brahma Swarup Guru or Satpurush, who is Akshar Brahma, I think about Dr. Epijay Abdul Kalam, the late President of India, who was a scientist and also known as Missile Man of India. He quotes, You are, while he was talking about a Guru, he says, You are a great teacher. I learned to remove I, remove me. That's a great lesson I have learned. Remove I and mine. I learned from you." There is lot of knowledge in many Shastras, but the Guru is needed for one to imbibe the knowledge, that is, for one to put the knowledge into practice. To conclude, the Guru is said to be the means of all these remedies, as it is through him that one gains all of the knowledge of the Upanishads. I would like to conclude by a verse from Shweta Shwetar Upanishad. deve para bhaktir yatha deve tatha gurau kathita yardhaha prakashante mahatmanaha All those attainments noted in the scriptures shine forth for the great person who has the same profound bhakti towards the guru as he has towards God. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Akshar, for a very beautiful and clear presentation. This is a very formal occasion, but I I think I was remiss to say how wonderful these persons are on campus. Akshar has many, many friends now at Harvard as well as, I think, in the entire United States. And he's a very serious scholar, but also has this loving style that I think we could have a sense of tonight. Our second speaker is one of those people who needs no introduction, but he gets one anyway. Swami Sarvapriyananda of the Ramakrishna Mission. Uh, He is the minister and spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York. Swami joined the Ramakrishna Mutt and Mission in 1994. And he took his vows, received sannyas in 2004. He has many experiences and training moments in India before coming to the West. He served as an Acharya teacher of the Monastic Probationers Training Center at Belor Mut, the very headquarters of the Ramakrishna order. He also has served the Mutt and mission in other capacities, such as being the vice principal of the Deogar Vidyapit higher, ed- higher Secondary School, the principal of the Shikshana Mandira Teacher Education College at Belaramat, and indeed was the first registrar of the Vivekananda University at Belaramat itself. Prior to coming to New York to be head of this very distinguished and old center, he had served for a number of months, about a year, at the Vedanta Society of Southern California, and then came to New York in 2017. I've learned only since Swami came that he is an absolute superstar. It seems half the people I meet on campus have already seen uh, swami online somewhere and we're very grateful and very lucky to have him with us this year so welcome swami
1: thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> om asato ma ma gamaya, ma amritam gamaya Om shanti 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 Om lead us from the unreal
3: to the real lead us from darkness unto light lead us from death to immortality Om peace 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 friends i read somewhere that the famous physicist Niels Bohr uh, he said that if you are not shocked by quantum mechanics, you have not understood quantum mechanics. An acquaintance and friend of mine, Ankur Barua, who teaches uh, Indian philosophy at Cambridge University, the other Cambridge across the pond. <laughs> so he begins his Advaita Vedanta class. His handout begins with If you are not shocked by Advaita Vedanta, you have not understood it. I'm going to speak about. A school of Vedanta, Akshar spoke about one school. I'm going to speak about another school, Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual Vedanta. Now, what is it that's so unique and strange and remarkable and even shocking about Advaita Vedanta? It's helpful to see what Advaita Vedanta is not. That gives us a good sense of what it is. Um, religion, the kind of religion we are most familiar with and we, most of us we study here at the Divinity School, is faith-based. So you are told by your tradition, by your books, by your teachers, that God exists. And you have to believe in God and surrender to God. And there are devotional practices. But notice, all of that is based on faith. It starts with belief. And it's belief which sustains you for a long time. And um, the problem with this approach is a very beautiful approach. And it's, it's the most common approach. You find it across the religions of the world. The only problem with this approach is it's vulnerable to uh, skepticism. It always has been, and especially in today's age. You just have to listen to a few minutes of uh, Christopher Hitchens, bless his heart, and uh, Richard Dawkins, and uh, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, to know what I'm talking about. Uh, to those who are much too emotionally involved, even to the point of fanaticism, I prescribe a course of Dawkins and uh, and uh, Sam Harris, and um, Christopher Hitchens. As against this, there is another kind of religion, an experience-based religion. So it's not not that you just have to believe in something, but that these things, God and an immortal soul, and uh, um, they can be experienced. This experience-based approach, I think this is what made Swami Vivekananda so popular when he came to this country um, in the late 19th century to a land which thought of religion as faith. In fact, the most common word for religion even today is faith. Uh, he said that religion does not consist in believing doctrines. Uh, it consists in actually realizing the truths of religion. Uh, if God exists, I must be able to see God. If I, have a, if I have an immortal soul, I must feel it. The basic idea is that there are extraordinary experiences which are called mystic experiences which, if you have them, they reveal to you the truths of religion. The claims of religion are validated by mystical experience. A classic text in the Indian tradition of this type would be the Patanjali Yoga Sutra. It was, an, it was no accident that Swami Vivekananda chose that uh, that as the first book to translate and publish from the Vedanta Society of New York, his famous Raja Yoga, it's based on, on the yoga sutras. But even here. That's not Vedanta either. That's not Advaita either, the path of mystical experience. Even the path of mystical experience, it can be critiqued. Suppose you have wonderful experiences, very spiritual experiences. A neuroscientist and a doctor can come and tell you that um, there's no doubt that you felt these things. We are not denying that. But it's just this little problem. You have a little tumor in your brain, which is pressing against such and such nerve. And that's what's giving you these experiences. It does not really tell you that there is a god or an immortal soul or that we are all one. In fact, recently there was a very popular YouTube video about a neuroscientist. She got a stroke. And uh, for some time, because of that hemorrhage in her brain, the experience was of a feeling of oneness, universal oneness. And she talks about it. And that talk became very popular. Many people have seen it. So that could be a critique, that no, mystical experience, you're not denying that you experience these things. But we can say that they don't really prove anything special to you. It just could be something neurological. So that's the way of mystical experience. Advaita Vedanta often is confused with this. But it is not a path of mystical experience. Now, let me be clear. I'm being too strict here. There is a room for faith in Advaita Vedanta. There is a room for mystical experience in Advaita Vedanta. But I want to get to the heart of Advaita Vedanta. And I think such exercises in drilling down are helpful to get at the core concept, after which you can build up again. So no, Advaita Vedanta, classical Advaita Vedanta, is not a path of mystic experience either. What is it a path of? It's a path of knowledge. What do I mean by that? You see, mystic experiences, the problem with that is most of us don't have it. Even if they were valid and justified, and they are are very valuable, but most of us don't have it. And it takes a long time and arduous practice to even to make a beginning on the path of mysticism in every religion of the world. Um, What Advaita Vedanta says, not mystical experience, not faith, but take up experiences which are common to all of us. We all have these experiences. What experiences? Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. I mean, I hope you're all in the waking state right now, because Advaita Vedanta has a tendency of putting people to sleep. But but these are experiences we all have every day. And that's all that is needed for Advaita Vedanta. Then you go to these texts, and they will guide you through a process of reasoning based upon experiences which we all have, waking, dreaming, d- deep sleep, um, the seer and the scene, the different layers of the human personality. We are all aware of our bodies, our breath, our mind, our intellect. We are all aware of it. That's all you need on this path. And the promises, the claim is, with on the basis of these common experiences of humanity, we will start a process of inquiry which will lead you to the, the core of Advaita, Advaita Vedanta, the the knowledge which Advaita Vedanta embodies, that we are one with the absolute, that our reality is, and that we are one with God, to put it in a very broad sense, aham brahmasmi, I am the absolute. And that can actually be experienced, or more clearly, uh, it can be realized. It's an existing reality, not accomplished. They say praptasya prapti, that which you already have attained, you attain it again. So this is Advaita Vedanta at its heart, not a path of believing something, not a path of um, seeking extraordinary mystical experiences, but a path of philosophical, a spiritual philosophical inquiry. And very quickly, I'm not saying Advaita says you can argue your way to God. Uh, not that kind. But reason is it takes you to, that, to the very verge after which there is an intuitive jump uh, that has to occur. The journey in Advaita Vedanta, Is not a journey in space. You're not going from here to there. Sometimes I see when you're driving around the United States, uh, you find these huge posters. Heaven is a place. Call 1800, something like that, you know. So, now what does that mean? It's very interesting. It's a place. Uh, That means it's not this place, it's that place, and you have to go there. Advaita Vedanta is not a journey in place. The Brahman, which we are speaking about, the absolute reality, it's there. Everywhere, it's there, here, and there, too. It's not a journey in time. Again, some of the billboards will say, after death, very ominous, big letters, after death, you will see God. Call 1800 something something it will be written there. Now, but what's interesting is, after. After is a time word. Not now, then. So you have to wait through time. It's a journey through time. Advaita Vedanta is not a journey through time. It's not about something that's going to happen later. That reality which we are, which Advaita Vedanta is trying to point out about ourselves, is a reality now and then and every when, (laughs) all the time. It's not a journey from us to something else. The reality which Advaita Vedanta speaks about is not an other, not something different from you. It's our own reality, not as we know ourselves. Because Advaita Vedanta claims that uh, we are terribly, terribly mistaken about ourselves. Um, Swami Vivekananda would often say, if only you knew yourselves as you really are. You know? So that's what Advaita Vedanta wants to say. It's not a journey from um, us to something else, a journey from one object to another object, or subject to some other object. Rather, it's a realization of the reality about ourselves. Not a journey in space, not a journey in time, not a journey from one object to the other. I'm sort of translating uh, Hindi uh, pravachans, the talks given by the acharyas of uh, Vedanta in Hindi. De shakal vastu. I'm translating that into English. So, what is it? A journey? What kind of spiritual journey does Advaita speak about? It's a journey from ignorance to knowledge. What kind of ignorance? Ignorance about our real nature. We do not know what we really are. To a knowledge of our real nature. Knowledge, of course, is a living reality, and a vibrant, experienced reality. This is called spiritual realization. So this is the uniqueness of Advaita Vedanta. It's a delicate point to make. But if you think about it, you begin to see there's something really remarkable about what Advaita is trying to tell us. Vedanta for the 21st century. I'm careful about the time. (laughs) I haven't started yet. That's why I was looking at the clock. Let me make a beginning. What can we say? What can Advaita give us in the 21st century? I'm going to share with you three big ideas, none of which are mine. I'm just sharing them with you. Three big ideas for the 21st century from Advaita Vedanta. First, Advaita Vedanta and the hard problem of consciousness. Right now, in the last 20 years or so, and right now, we are in the midst of an of a boom in consciousness studies and in research into consciousness maybe prompted by the recent developments in technology and neuroscience. And it's a multidisciplinary subject. Um, there are computer scientists who are interested in it, linguists and philosophers and psychologists and doctors and neuroscientists and brain scientists. So many people are interested in consciousness studies. The question is, what is consciousness? And it's a mystery. There almost every other day you find new articles coming up. There either be the mystery of consciousness, one kind of article, or the other kind of article would be consciousness explained, breaking news. I always call those articles consciousness explained away. Um, What is consciousness? Why should it be a mystery? It's put very well by um, David Chalmers, who is the head of the Mind-Brain Consciousness Unit at NYU. Uh, He coined the term, the hard problem of consciousness. Why is it so difficult? There are these easy problems, easy within quotes. They're not easy, but uh, comparatively. What is going on in our brain is correlated to our conscious experiences. So I feel a pin, pinprick maybe, a pain. And the brain scientist looks at what neurons are firing in my brain and correlates. Oh, those firing of those neurons is causing this pain. So it's a science of correlations. This kind of neuronal activity is related to this conscious event. That's one kind of consciousness studies. There is another kind. The hard problem of consciousness. How is it that we, all of us, sentient beings, have this inner movie playing within our heads all the time? Sights and sounds and smells and touch and thought. The Keno Upanishad which we chanted at the beginning, the first verse starts with, impelled by what do our minds think? What is it? Impelled by what shining do we see? Do our eyes see? Do our tongues speak? What is that one thing which gives us all these first person experiences? See, the question of the hard problem of consciousness, which has been formulated or reformulated in our times by David Chalmers. Thousands of years ago, this very question, the Upanishad begins with this question. Advaita begins with this question and ends with its answer. Why should it be so strange? Think about it. If you just look at some of David Chalmers' TED talks, you will see what he means. Think about it. None of the physical things here, this table, even this highly sophisticated computer, none of them have a second internal first person state. Only us, there is something what it is like to be outside. You can see the person, but inside something is going on. Inside, not physically inside. That's also something that a doctor can check. But inside in our minds, thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires, questions, and it somehow feels like that. Even the most sophisticated machine, the most sophisticated computer does not have that. It has only one state, the physical state. You can thoroughly describe what is going on in terms of physics. Even our most esteemed colleagues across the street at Maxwell Dorkin, who come up with these fancy machines, none of them ever claims that the machines are conscious in any any sense that we use. Even the most sophisticated ones. Imagine a Google self-driving car, and you are driving your car. And you turn the car at this corner, and the Google car also turns along with you, doing exactly what you are doing. But there's something going on in your car which is not going on there. You, the feeling of driving and sound and decision making, uh, the tension in your body, the feel of it which you have, there is nothing corresponding to that in that Google car. How is it that we are conscious? There doesn't seem to be any space for that in a deterministic universe. So we are studying this. I'm taking this course on philosophy of mind at Emerson, and I'll let you into a secret. Those folks over there, very smart folks, they think most of us are zombies. In the sense, they really do. After Descartes, who posited that there are two kinds of things, the mental and the physical. You know the famous cogito argosum? I uh, think, therefore I exist. I'm a thinking being, and I'm related somehow to a material universe through a material body. The entire history of the philosophy of mind, uh, which we are studying, Gilbert Ryle, or Smart, or Carnap, is a pushback against the possibility of mind, against the possibility of consciousness. Oh, there's no such thing as consciousness. What do you mean? When you're pricked with a pin and you um, shout out, and you say, I'm feeling pain, that making a face and shouting out, that's pain. I say, no, 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 that's just the behavior. Inside, I'm feeling something. Oh, there's nothing like that. It's just that behavior. You might think they're crazy or something, or are they zombies? But that, they mean it seriously. There's a whole school which seeks to explain away consciousness as behavior. Logical behaviorism, Gilbert Ryle, very smart people. I asked David Chalmers once, these very smart people who deny consciousness, don't they get it? Don't they get the question? So he was nice. He said that, Swami, they, they get the question, but they are, um, they are reframing it in some other way. That, that's not the word he used, but they, are, they, are, they understand it in a different way. Galen Strawson who is a brilliant philosopher, I hope to meet him someday, is at uh, the University of Texas uh, in Austin. He has written some very caustic articles about this. One is the silliest hypothesis. What is the silliest hypothesis? He says, this modern, the turn in philosophy of mind, trying to deny the existence of consciousness, that is the silliest hypothesis. So um, it's much more logical to think of ourselves as conscious beings having the experience of a material universe, and then you relate it. And David Chalmers, in fact, has come up with this idea of uh, panpsychism, that consciousness is an all-pervasive, ubiquitous reality. Advaita Vedanta can contribute something there. I mean, almost all the time in the philosophy of mind class, I I have this temptation of saying, no, 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 I I can solve this problem, but I restrain myself. But there are so many insights not just in Advaita Vedanta, in Sankhya, Yoga, many schools of Buddhism, which can actually contribute. We can discuss some of them in the Q&A session. There was a conference, and people are beginning to recognize this. There was a conference in NYU. David Chalmers himself organized it. Advaita Vedanta and the hard problem of consciousness. And there were three or four of the top people in the philosophy of mind whose articles we are reading now. They are present in the room. What happened later on, you can ask me, I'll tell you. Not much happened. So that's one thing. Advaita Vedanta and the hard problem of consciousness, there's something to be done there. OK, yes. two minutes for two, two more big ideas. <laughs> um, the second big idea I want to share is Advaita Vedanta and um, the, let's, I'll call it, the grand unified theory of religion. Um, just the outlines of it. The essence of Advaita Vedanta is tattvamasi, that thou art. Now think about it. Religions of the world can be cleanly divided into these two categories. There are the that-centered religions. That-centered means God-centered religions. And Christianity, Islam, Judaism, uh, Vaishnavism, Shaktism, Shaivism, these are basically God-centered religions, that there is a God. There is the self-oriented or self-inquiry-based religions. Um, Buddhism comes to mind. Yoga comes to mind. Sankhya comes to mind. Jainism comes to mind. So there are these two different kinds of religions and these two different approaches to spiritual life. In this room itself, if you ask, um, why am I interested in religion, those who are spiritual seekers, you'll get two kinds of answers. One is, I'm looking for God. I believe in God. I love God. I'm searching for God. That's entered. The other one is, well, God is fine, but I'm more interested in who am I, an inquiry into myself, self inquiry based approach. Tat and that and thou. Very quickly, that-centered religions have some uh, the deep problem with that is that's uh, that's based entirely on belief. God is fine, but the question is, does God exist? That's the whole question. That's the whole problem with the that-centered approach. That's why you will find in those religions enormous efforts to prove the existence of God. That problem is not there with the uh, self-inquiry-based religions. Nobody doubts, including Descartes, that whether I exist or not. There's a certainty about that. But the problem with the self-inquiry-based approach is our existence is certain. But that's the problem. Our existence, certain existence, is, um, um, is surrounded by suffering and sorrow. What Advaita Vedanta does is it relates the two. Our certain exp- existence is shown to be infinite by the process of Advaita inquiry. The third point, I will not make it, because there are two speakers who are going to actually speak about it. Shweta Ji will speak about that point, ethics and Advaita Vedanta. And I highly recommend Professor Rambachan's book, Hindu Theory, um, Theology of Liberation, which is about how Advaita Vedanta can be applied to today's problems. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: So as I promised, uh, Swami is a very dynamic speaker. And I'm sure that there'll be many questions and follow-up conversation that we can have afterwards. I'm very happy now to introduce our third speaker, Brahmacharini Shweta Chaitanya of the Chinmaya Mission. Uh, Shweta perhaps has the longest journey of anyone here in terms of her spiritual journey. Her Vedanta journey began when she started attending children's classes at Chinmaya Mission in Houston, Texas at the age of six years old. After completing her undergraduate degree years later in Sanskrit at the University of Texas at Austin, inspiration from the Vedanta teachings of the Chinmaya mission came together intensely with her Sanskrit studies, and this in turn led her to spend a two-year residential Vedanta course at the Sandipani Sadhanalaya in Mumbai in 2014. So she moved to India and did this deeper, intensive study. And after being trained in great depth by Swami Bodhatmananda for two years there, she returned to Columbia University in New York to finish her master's degree. So this wonderful combination of traditional learning and learning in the modern Western academy. And then, as a climax, in August 2017, Swami Swarupananda, the worldwide head of the Chinmaya mission, initiated Shreta into the monastic order under this monastic name of Shreta Chaitanya. She is now posted when she's not at Harvard in Houston, Texas. She shares the message of Advaita Vedanta through discourses offered at Chinmaya Mission Houston in study groups across the greater Houston area, and I think increasingly also in direct forms of Hindu spiritual ministry. So Shweta, though still very young, brings an enormous wealth of experience and a very good heart to her work. So we look forward to hearing you.
4: And Bernams to all. Um, my gratitude to everyone for taking the time out to be a part of this event, either in person or virtually online. Uh, and of course, a special thanks to everybody who worked so hard to put the event together, um, especially given the uh, current circumstances. In the panel we mm-hmm. had last year, I had spoken about the influence the Maharashtrian saint poet, Tukaram Maharaj, had in my life. Today, or yesterday depending on the calendar that you may follow, happens to be the day that Tukaram Maharaj left his physical body. His life is commemorated on this day by singing his compositions and remembering the deep impact his powerful words had on the lives of so many during his time and after. And so I offer this talk today at his lotus feet. Now, Swamiji has just spoken uh, about the Advaita Vedanta tradition, and I also come from the same tradition. So there will inevitably, inevitably be some overlap. But yesterday, Swamiji assured me that you can never hear Vedanta too many times. So I'm comforted in that. In the Vedanta tradition, the Upanishads are considered a mirror to the self. They reveal to us exactly who we are in the most fundamental sense. So who are we? The Upanishads declare that we are Brahman, the Infinite Self, sat ananda Existence, Consciousness, Bliss. And this is our nature, right here, right now. Well, last time I checked, my mirror reported something very, very different. But it's precisely in this contradiction that Advaita Vedanta begins its work. It urges us to dig deep into our current personal experience to try to locate our experience of I. Where is it? Is it in the body? Is it in the mind? In our emotions, our memories, our convictions? Upon observation, I can see that all of these things are observable. They come into my awareness, their changes are perceived by me, and yet, when they change, I still experience myself as a singular, continuous observer. Here we are essentially being pointed to our innermost experience of I, a subject even subtler than our thoughts. This subject is the very same one in whose awareness we switch between the experiences of waking dream, and deep sleep. This is why we can take a nice nap, sometimes during talks just like this, and wake up and say, I slept so well. In other words, I know I had the experience of not experiencing anything. Actually, this sleep joke, I think it comes up a lot in Vedanta (laughs) talks, and sometimes it makes me feel that deep sleep is brought up just to wake up students. Anyways. But the Advaita teaching does not stop here. It is not enough to separate the observer from the observed. It is not enough to recognize my subjectivity as something that simply oversees my experience of all the states, waking, dream, deep sleep, and everything in between. There's one more step. Vedanta wants to say that this observer is not limited in nature. It is infinite. In the Viveka Churamani, a text attributed to Shankaracharya. It is said, pravilapya The one who can claim complete freedom in the self, the one who is mukta, not only does this person discern between the observer and the observed, but she also does what is called pravilapanam. She dissolves the seeming difference between the two, subject and object, back into the subject. And just to reiterate, this is the observer that is present even during the experience of deep sleep. Advaita Vedanta's claim is that without this observer or awareness, there would be no possibility of individual subjective experience or even the experienced world. This is the heart of Advaita Vedanta, recognizing that all this is known through our experience And all that has the potential to be known through our experience is, in essence, nothing fundamentally separate from the non-dual, infinite self. It is in the light of this ultimate self that everything, from the experienced world to the agent that experiences it, exists. So what does this mean? What does this do for the one who knows it? Advaita Vedanta actually begins its inquiry not necessarily in search of truth, but in search of enduring happiness, peace. Vedanta tells us that the joy we seek in the world of objects is merely a reflection of the joy within. So long as we seek it outside of ourselves, it'll continue to slip out of our grasp. Effectively, what one stands to gain through this journey is the knowledge that they themselves, not as the agent, but as the infinite self, are the very source of joy that they have been seeking outside. Therefore, complete fulfillment, here and now, is the outcome of this process. And now immediately, there may be, this may seem problematic. So long as this body and mind function, there will always be experience. And observation tells us that we can never guarantee the cessation of sorrowful experience. And this is very true. But Vedanta never claimed to change the nature of our worldly experience, only our perspective towards it. The liberated one is simply awakened to the reality that was once hidden in plain sight. The example of mirage water works best to illustrate this. Prior to knowing it as a mirage, I might have thought that the water appearing in front of me had the potential to quench my thirst. I might have thought that the water... I might have spent hours running after it. But upon realizing it to be nothing but a play of sunlight, I would no longer run after it, hopefully, with the idea that it could quench my thirst, no matter how water-like the appearance may may be. Water appears before and after the sunlight is apprehended. The difference is that afterwards, the very real appearance of thirst-quenching water is seen exactly as it is, an appearance. Similarly, the one who recognizes the infinite reality within and without no longer seeks fulfillment in the world of objects. The world of experience is there prior to realization and afterwards. The difference is that the realized one won't run after it with the idea that it can offer fulfillment, since the notion is clearly understood, since this notion is clearly understood to be an appearance. This person now lives in this very same world, not for, but out of complete fulfillment. More importantly, in the eye of her mind, she now sees this world as nothing but an expression of her own infinite self. Before moving further, I'd like to take a moment to clearly point out what this does not mean. It does not necessarily mean that the realized person no longer engages in the world thinking it to be a mere illusion. The only illusion is the illusion of finding completeness separate from the self. In fact, an attitude of neglect is impossible for the one who sees the very core of herself emanating in and through the entire world around her. This person continues in this world as before with the same body, mind, and sense of agency. The only difference is that all of these things are understood to be relative, and dependent on what is fundamental, which is Brahman. I want to remind us that for the Advaitin, this is not a forced, contrived, or even mystical vision of non-duality. It is a clear discovery of something fundamental that can never again be ignored. For the realized one, this knowledge of non-duality becomes the cornerstone for an attitude of spontaneous care, love, and empathy For all beings in the environment, since they are, undeniably, expressions of the very same self. What is important to me, as a 21st century seeker of this goal, pertains to a message that Shankaracharya shares in his commentary on chapter 2 of the Gita. He says, in essence, that whatever traits the Vedanta texts share about realized people Those very same traits should be practiced diligently by the seekers of liberation. In fact, in the Vedanta Sar, another text, towards the end, it is said that the the realized person naturally exhibits qualities of goodness after realization due to the very fact that they were cultivated prior to realization. I bring this up because it is imperative to see that the Advaita journey must be fleshed out by a sincere cultivation of personality traits that embody a global spirit of unity and connectedness amongst all beings. In the earlier portion of the Vedanta Sar text, the teacher explains the self to the seeker as that which expresses through the individual and through the total simultaneously. It is the infinite self alone that appears as the individual and it is the same self that appears as the totality in which the individual exists. While there are technical implications for this statement within the Advaita context, it is clear that the seeker is being asked to recognize her individual existence as situated within the totality of the world around, existing as part of it and not somehow inherently separate from it. To me, this terminology of individual and total, or in Sanskrit, vyashti and samashti, marks a beautiful expansion of thought for the seeker. Suddenly, the student must think of herself in constant relation to the world around her. This doesn't mean that she has to know every last bit of information about the world at large, but it means that she must encounter her own experience as situated in a vast web of experience that is in const- that is constantly in flux and ever connected. She must open her eyes to the threads that connect her to connect her to the experiences of others. This inseparable relationship between individual and total becomes the guide with which she leads her life as a seeker, and then naturally after realization. This allows her to focus on what is fundamental to us all, that we do not each live in our own personal vacuum, that all beings are comprised of and depend upon the same exact five elements and that we are all connected through our shared experience of life's spectrums of highs and lows. These are all key observations Vedanta teachers emphasize during the teaching process. It is while keeping these observations in mind that the seeker fine tunes the fourfold qualities essential for clear knowledge of the self. Viewed in this way, the spirit of living in a socially aware and engaged manner is at the heart of Advaita Vedanta both in practice and in principle. I'm speaking here today as a female monastic because Swami Chinmayananda exhibited this spirit. Keeping in mind the history through which this teaching has come to us, today more than ever, being a practicing Advaitin necessitates taking an active role in working against inequality, shame, taboo, and everything else that skews the reality of our fundamental oneness with one another. In fact, this is precisely what today's practicing Advaitin would ask themselves. How can I act in this world such that our singular identity with one another is not skewed or hidden? In the wake of today's public health concerns, the fact that we live a shared physical experience as human beings is now clearer than daylight. Even a genuine recognition of our fundamental oneness at the physical level is plenty a start to keep the insidious creepers of hatred, bias, and crippling fear from encroaching upon us. To conclude, realizing the truth of Brahman simply means to recognize and give priority to what is essential, what is inherent, and what is fundamental to life, and to never ignore it again once it is known. It is not a call to make this ego, this agent, feel infinite. That would be a disaster. Rather, it is a call to strip away the centrality we ascribe to this agent in light of the undeniable truth of the infinite self." Oh, that's it.
0: Thank you, Shweta, for such a beautiful and well-expressed presentation. If we had any good sense at this point, we would simply stop and meditate for an hour or so upon the wisdom we have shared. But of course, with our in-house audience and audience online, we're not able to do that. So luckily, I have somebody to pass the responsibility to to offer a few comments. We are extremely fortunate to have with us tonight Professor Anantanan Brambachan. He is professor of religion at St. Olive College in Minnesota. He himself is a dedicated disciple of a great Swami, Swami Dayananda, and has managed over the decades to combine traditional learning and academic learning as well. His own scholarly interests include Advaita, Vedanta, Hindu ethics, liberation theology, and interreligious dialogue. Among his many books, I can point to Accomplishing the Accomplished, his first one, The Vedas as a Source of Valid Knowledge in Shankara. The Limits of Scripture, Swami Vivekananda's Reinterpretation of the Authority of the Vedas, The Advaita Worldview, God, World, and Humanity, A Hindu liberation of the, uh, Theology of Liberation, which Swami mentioned, and then most recently, hot off the press, Essays in Hindu Theology. He is also a renowned teacher. I note here, The BBC transmitted not long ago a series of 25 lectures on Hinduism by Professor Rambachan for a worldwide audience. You can probably still find them online. But somehow, in the midst of all these duties and responsibilities, being a department chair and so on, he's also been exceedingly busy in dialogue. He has been involved in dialogue for over 25 years. He is active in dialogue programs at the World Council of Churches and indeed was a Hindu guest and presenter at four general assemblies of the World Council of Churches. He's also involved in consultations at the Vatican, the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. He currently participates as a Hindu theologian in the Ethics in Action Dialogues at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And here I cannot but uh, interject that I, a Roman Catholic, have met exactly zero popes. And Professor Ambachan has sent me pictures of meeting at least three popes personally, shaking hands and exchanging greetings. So he's very well placed. Uh, he also serves as the president of the board of the Araga Two International, a global organization advocating the rights of children and mobilizing the resources of religions to overcome violence against children. And finally, he was very recently elected co-president of Religions for Peace, the largest global interna- I'm sorry, interfaith network. So let us welcome Professor Rambachan.
5: So greetings, everyone. And uh, I want to also say a very special greeting to Swamiji, Swamityagananda, who is a senior uh, monk of the Ramakrishna order, and um, honored to have been his friend and to be his friend for many, many years. So very good to have you in the audience and uh, greetings to all of you who are also joining us uh, online. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Clooney, for inviting me to be part of this uh, dialogue. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share some of my own thoughts and uh, my gratitude also to uh, Swamiji, Swami Sarva Priyananda, also to uh, Sadak Akshar, and of course uh, Brahmacharini Shweta for each uh, distinctive conversations um, to our discussion uh, tonight. So what I would like to do is to sort of, um, after listening to the three of them, I had some notes before and some notes now. I would like to offer some broad reflections on what I see as some of the challenges of Vedanta for the 21st century in accord with what you said, but I think also um, trying to raise some questions uh, further, so as uh, uh, Swamiji said, uh, the traditions of Vedanta are preeminently traditions of knowledge. They are traditions of of jnana. And the term Vedanta, uh, in its primary meaning, refers to the end of the Vedas. It points to the Upanishads, the concluding dialogues at the end of these uh, texts. But in a secondary sense, Vedanta also means the end of all knowledge or the highest uh, knowledge, which is also one of the ways of breaking up the the, uh, compound. And Vedanta traditions do indeed affirm that the Upanishads offer the final teachings of the Vedas or the highest wisdom. To describe the Vedanta traditions as traditions of knowledge, is to imply, I think, as all of our speakers uh, said in different ways, is to imply that these are teaching traditions. Knowledge is imparted and transmitted from a teacher, as, uh, as uh, Sadak Akshar said, from teacher, from guru to student, through a process of inquiry, in interrogation, and dialogue, and. Uh, you know, there are some very beautiful sections of these Upanishads speaking about relationships between teachers and uh, students. So the opening mantra of the Thaytriya Upanishad speaks about the hope that teachers and students will inquire with vigor, and that the fruits of knowledge will be illuminating. And uh, they will engage in this inquiry without mutual Hostility, Mahavid So these are traditions from which we can retrieve today a great reverence for learning, a reverence for the teacher-student uh, relationship, and for relationships among students of uh, of a teacher. I think this is something that I feel myself, you know, teaching for the over thirty-five years an institution of learning that we sometimes don't don't value and uh, the relationship between teacher and student is can be trivialized in a culture that does not rever um, learning so I, I offer these opening remarks to make the point that that the center of learning like Harvard Divinity School and the program which has brought uh, these three monastics here, with the support of <laughs> a wonderful uh, family, is that the Hava Divinity is a natural and congenial home for the Vedanta traditions, as traditions of learning, as traditions of inquiry. And I think this program is really um, inspired and committed by that kind of uh, vision to bring uh, diverse uh, students and teachers in it process of deep learning and and inquiry. So this commitment to inquiry and the profound quality of learning that the Vedanta traditions exemplify enable them to engage in the mutuality of sharing and receiving that characterizes any good pedagogy. The value and respect for learning, in other words, does not stop at the boundaries of the Vedanta uh, tradition and should not stop. At the boundaries of those traditions. There is an ancient um, Rigveda mantra that I think um, is instructive to, to all of us. Ano bhadraha kritavoyantu vishvataha. May noble thoughts, may wisdom come to us from all sides, from, from everywhere. And I think it's an, an ancient acknowledgement that no tradition has a grasp on the fullness. Of wisdom or the fullness of teachers of learning, we can be open to instruction from from all sides. So when I look at the Vedanta traditions, there, I want to organize my thoughts. Uh, probably I'll only get through two of the constellations of questions that I want to raise. If time permits, I might touch on the third, but I'll limit myself uh, to two. First to talk about the relationship between Vedanta traditions and other traditions. Now, the Vedanta traditions have always defined and explained themselves in conversation with rival systems, both orthodox systems and what we call heterodox systems in Sanskrit, the Astika and the systems. And these traditions, the Vedanta traditions, always took the critique of other traditions other systems very seriously, and were not unwilling to learn from them, to incorporate. Even as they debated them, they were also being transformed in various ways by these encounters with with other uh, systems. We see this, uh, there's a lot of evidence of this. We see this approach preeminently, for example, in the commentaries of the great uh, non-dual teacher, the Advaita teacher, Shankara. He expounds, develops uh, his interpretation of the Advaita in disputation with uh, the ritualist schools, the Purva Mimamsa, with Sankhya, yoga, with Nyaya, and also with what uh, were regarded as heterodox systems like Buddhism and, and Jainism. And he demonstrates a commendable effort, not Always, these systems might say (laughs) to represent them fairly in his summaries and his articulations. But there is something there that, uh, you know, he was challenged to first describe these traditions and then to uh, engage them. But my point is that in the process of engaging these all very sophisticated traditions and attempting, when necessary, to refute some of them, their claims, Shankara also incorporated many of their insights, and the Advaita tradition was enriched. And and, and his engagement with Buddhism, I think, is a good example of of that process of debate and mutual enrichment. Now, today, I believe it was a long time ago since I myself studied (laughs) as a monastic. But not long ago, I made an effort um, to gather the what we will call the syllabi of monastic institutions in India, and to try to understand and to study how they were teaching Vedanta in these institutions, what was the course of studies in Vedanta, what it, what it looked like, what were the topics um, covered, and I found, and I don't I don't know if it has how significantly it has changed since I requested those um, documents but i found that the emphasis in the teaching of the vedanta at traditional institutions is still still had a heavy emphasis on the classical commentaries and the engagement with say the mimamsa nyaya yoga sankhya etc this is very i'm not trying to dismiss this it's very interesting historically interesting and enlightening but i think There is a challenge here, because our context is now different. And Vedanta in the 21st century, while not giving up on that kind of classical study, has to engage with new conversation partners. The circle of conversation that are important to the Vedanta in the 20th century cannot still be only the classical interlocutors of Shankara and Ramanuja and the Madhva and and others. the living traditions, I, I want to say, that ought today to be our dialogue partners must also include uh, Christianity, Islam, uh, Buddhism, of course, Judaism, as well as contemporary, secular, and scientific um, perspectives. And Swamiji gave a very good example of how we perhaps can engage in conversations about the nature of, of consciousness. The purpose of such conversations, I want to uh, emphasize, has to also be different from the classical times. Because in the classical period, the, the, the motivation for studying the other, the motivation for engaging in debate was to defeat. The other. There was a sense of victory that you somehow demolish the argument of the, of the other. And there was a certain kind of triumphalism uh, when, when that happened. Certainly, there should be sound critical um, engagement in these dialogues. But I think that a more profound aim should be to engage with others for mutual enrichment, mutual enrichment through study and dialogue. Now, as a Vedantin myself, let me say something self-critical. The Vedanta traditions, as I, as I um, said, you know, one of the ways in which we read the meaning of Vedanta is the ultimate knowledge, highest knowledge, the fullness, the culmination of all knowledge. And I think any tradition, and we could look at you know, beyond the Vedanta, but any tradition claiming final and fullness of knowledge or the highest knowledge does run the risk of a certain kind of elitism. That can easily slip, and I'm, none of the presenters here, you know, manifested that. But I think in the history of the Vedanta tradition, there has also been a certain kind of elitism and even an arrogance in the way in which they presented themselves and engaged other traditions. Because, after all, you know, if you claim fullness of knowledge, it it can inform the way in which you might engage. Um, the other. So I want to make a plea for Vedanta in the 21st century also um, to to develop the virtue of humility in its engagement with with other uh, traditions. And I think that there are rich resources within the Vedanta tradition for a virtue of humility in dialogue with others and openness to the enrichment that might come from, from dialogue. I don't have time myself to speak of all of that tonight, but I can give you so many examples as a Vedantin myself of all the ways that my engagement with other traditions has transformed my own understanding of the Vedanta tradition and all the ways in which it has inspired um, the work that I do as a, as a scholar of the Vedanta, but that's that's for another um, presentation. You know, we have to look to all of the verses. We had the beautiful chanting of Swamiji in the from the uh, Kena Upanishad. We have the the words of the Tatiriya Upanishad cautioning us that from which all words return. And Kena Upanishad beautifully tells us about the paradox of speaking about. The ultimate. Um, it is not known by those who say they know. <laughs> it is known to those to whom it is unknown. All of these I read also as profound texts of humility uh, uh, about the one that we are that we are seeking uh, to know. And that humility has to find expressions both in the way in which we engage other intra-Vedanta traditions, but also traditions uh, outside of the Vedanta. Family. So here is a question. How do we articulate from within the Vedanta traditions a theology of humility for interreligious learning? What would be the core arguments of that theology? What does the Vedanta tradition, what is this theological need? for other traditions. If you claim, if a tradition claims full or final truth, does it really have a need for the other? What would be? How would we articulate from the traditions of Vedanta a, a theology of humility and need of enrichment for the other? What, how will we ground that in the sacred uh, texts that we, we study as we seek to enlarge conversation partners uh, in our contemporary uh, setting. Secondly, the the traditions of Vedanta, by and large, are traditions of renunciation. One sannyasa. One entered deeply into the study of these traditions through a ritual or a ceremony of renunciation, it's quite a um, significant ceremony. In the sense that it freed you from all ritual obligations. You know, you don't have to perform the traditional uh, rituals that uh, someone in the in the householder stage or the grihastha stage would have to perform. It also liberated you from all obligations to family. And community, which is signified you know, by the adoption of a new name. And uh, you know, renunciants even speak of the the life before renunciation as the previous life <laughs> in my Purva Janma, in my earlier life. This is a this is a new life. It's like you know, complete severing of ties with everything that went uh, before family, community ties, renunciation resulted in the, if you were married, it would be um, the dissolution of of marriage, freedom from contractual debts, the distribution of property among heirs, and even required the performance of one's own funeral ceremony. It is as radical as, as, as that. And I think that the consequences of a tradition that has developed in such a profound way as a tradition of, and culture of renunciation have been significant. Significant in many ways are just um, significant also for the exegesis of his texts. Because the primary exegetes of the Vedanta texts were renunciants, And clearly, if you are a renunciant, you are going to read the text through the lens of Renunciation. So now, when I, in my own case, you know, coming from a a background of monastic study, also, but 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 not following, then going back to graduate school, becoming a a professor of religion, marrying, having a family, and now very recently becoming a grandfather of twin babies. As a professor, as a father, as a grandfather, as an activist, when I read these texts, you know, over the last 30 years after studying the monastery, I say, how didn't they not see this? <laughs> how did not? How, how how did Shankara glossed over this, this potential, in this verse? And then I, then I, I mean, obviously he's reading it through the lens of a renouncing and, and the, all the other possibilities of the verses will not necessarily speak um, to the to the renounced. So, in reading Vedanta texts, such I think, and that's just a fact of life. You know, what you see depends on who you are and what your interests are. It's not to decry, you know, a particular kind of reading, but to speak about the limits of the lens through which one uh, reads the read the text. Um, So in reading Vedanta texts, such renunciant readings, um, readers and commentators were not interested in the implications of these teachings for life in the world, a, a world from which they had turned away. They were not asking, Shankara would not ask, what does this tell me about obligations to community, obligations to the world? Because this was a world that one had turned away from the exclusive concern here is is moksha. So I believe that a Vedanta for the 21st century is challenged to revisit fundamental questions about the value of the world, and life in the world, and human relationships, and to really ask how this tradition, how these Vedanta traditions how do we make the fullness of the Vedanta tradition available to human beings in diverse settings and relationships who are not renunciants? Is, is, the, is the fullness of the Vedanta tradition a privileged fullness that is available for, only for those who seek the part of renunciation? Or can it enrich also human beings in all of their rich relationships and, 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 and cultures. So if the world is devalued, and of course, you have interpretations of renunciation that do devalue the world, we have to, we have to acknowledge um, that. If, if the world is devalued and renunciation is interpreted as turning away from the world, then the Vedanta traditions will not feel obliged to engage seriously with suffering in this world that is caused not only by ignorance, but also by social and economic injustice, by racism, by sexism, by casteism. How do we to to address those kinds of problems, one has to have a value for life in the world. It requires an embracing of the world and not turning away um, from it. So I I, I'm, I want to say, say Vedanta in the 21st century is to mean, remain relevant. It must, without giving up certain interpretations of renunciation, because I think there is something very valuable in the ideal of, of renunciation. But you can see in a text like the Bhagavad Gita is also wrestling with what does renunciation really mean? right? And, and, and uh, uh, Krishna is contesting certain uh, Traditional understandings of renunciation and and advancing uh, very different definitions of renunciation. So Shankara would say, well, he's doing that only because Arjuna is not yet ready for renunciation. But I I I think that is not a very faithful reading of, of the argument of the of the Bhagavad Gita. My, myself, I think it's a radically different kind of renunciation that he's he's speaking about a will and engage renunciation in in um, in the world. So if the Vedanta traditions in the 21st century must remain relevant without giving up on the centrality of liberation, it has to enlarge its understanding of what is suffering. The traditional emphasis has been upon suffering as an inward condition that is associated with ignorance. And, And this is important, but there is no reason to limit our understanding of dukkha or suffering. In this way, we need an expansive understanding of both suffering and liberation. And there are no good theological reasons, I think, why the tradition cannot take this step um, in the twenty-first um, in the twenty-first uh, uh, century. So while we will will speak about the uh, peace, Vedanta ultimately awakening us to a deep peace and joy within. I think we have to push questions about what is the relationship between peace and justice? What is the relationship between an inward state of joy and injustice in the world? Otherwise, you know, the Vedanta becomes, uh, Vedanta becomes a privatized, <laughs> it's on the sign of liberation, becomes so privatized and individualized that it turns away, it ceases to be relevant um, to uh, the challenges of our of a world. So my contention is that the Vedanta tradition has to concern themselves actively with systemic sources of suffering and, uh, and plumb their resources. You have to read the text with new eyes <laughs> and to ask these kinds of bring these kinds of questions to the text which were not brought um, before. And that's why I do think that you know an experience being in an institution like uh, the Divinity School, where such questions hopefully are indeed <laughs> addressed, will be will challenge the Vedanta traditions to, to share, but also to open themselves also up to to learning, to ask questions of the traditions. The tradition has not asked all the questions that could be asked of the texts. There's a lot to be mined there, still, uh, but we need a stimulus. <laughs> We need the kinds of conversations that will, will, will stimulate the new questions that the Vedanta traditions uh, must, uh, must ask. I think I will stop there. So my, my third one, I will leave um, because of uh, time. So thank you very much, Frank, again, and uh, good to be here. <laughs>
0: So thank you very much, Anand, for a wonderful and very thoughtful presentation. Thinking on your feet and hearing these wonderful presentations, and then enhancing them by further comments. Thank you very much. So we have about twenty minutes left, and then we will stop at seven, for the sake of the people in the room and the people at home. who are going to go for dinner and so on, I suppose. Um, and I thought I'd do it this in two ways. One would be. Uh, and although he didn't get to his third point, I picked out three points in what he said. And we have three speakers uh, to ask each one of them to say something about one of these points. Uh, this is where I end up being a dictator up here. And then open it for a few questions from this audience in the room. And then I think Fibu may have some questions that have come in from outside. And then we'll try to stop at 7. So I'll, I'm sorry to be sort of um, you know organizing it a lot. But I think this may help us to get through. And I, when we get to the Questions, you know, short questions, short answers, I think will help us. But I, I saw that the three, three of the major points that Anant was making, uh, the role of humility in Vedanta and the need to learn from the other. The second one, renunciation, attitudes toward the world and why renunciation when there are goods in the world, like having children, grandchildren, and so on. And the third, what about suffering and what about justice? So I thought I would do these one, two, three. So Akshar. Uh, what do you think of this issue of humility in Vedanta and the need to balance having a complete tradition with the possibility of learning from others? So you don't have to speak to me, but you can speak to the, the audience. I'm sorry it's off the top of your head, but you can do this.
6: <laughs>
2: uh, this is really a great question. Uh, and just Professor Rambachan mentioned a quote from Rigved, which stated that, Ano bhadra kratavo yantu so let the noble thoughts come from all the directions, like all from every side. So whatever is good in other religions. Uh, and coming back to the question of uh, humility and like humanity in uh, the Vedanta, uh, one thing which uh, I have learned from my studies is that by learning Vedanta, you start respecting. And one of the point in my Uh, one of the argument uh, in my paper was about this. When you see God in everybody, you will have respect. And that respect is unconditional for those who are smaller than, younger than you, and for those who are elder than than you. So what eventually happens is that, like you feel that you are the spirit of servitude. And like there are many verses in the traditions uh, as like you may have heard about, like which states that like i am the das of the das of the das of the das of that person so like studying uh vedanta and uh, will uh, eventually make you humble up to the extent that you will respect people because you are seeing god in them and once you are seeing god in them then like the Feeling of humbleness, Mm. that's something I think that uh, we should get from this learning here. Thank you so much.
0: And the second question that I uh, discerned on renunciation, is there a new opportunity for a different attitude toward the world where Vedanta is not largely in the hands of renunciants, Swami? You can speak eloquently to this,
3: um, <laughs> although I am a renunciant. <laughs> but yes, it's true that if you read the texts, uh, Shankara's commentaries, we are reading Madhusud and Saraswati's commentaries, who is a sannyasi of, of the Dashnami Sampradaya. Um, you see again and again uh, the monk; it's the monk's perspective which is being brought up. Uh, it's the renunciant's perspective which is being brought up, and that's very natural. But I was when I was listening to Professor Rambachan, I was immediately reminded of. Uh, Swami Vivekananda's uh, exhortations, both in this country and in uh, India, I think the turn which is talking about, that was for the 21st century. It was already done in the late 19th century by Swami Vivekananda. For example, he who runs away from the world to meditate and die in a cave has missed the way. He who plunges headlong into the vanities of the world has missed the way. So if you run away from the world, you've missed the way. If you plunge into the world, you've missed the way. What is the way? And he says to see God in everybody, in every situation, every person, to divinize life itself. So you see the Upanishad very much there. The Bhagavad Gita, as he pointed out, the context was Krishna was not a renunciant, Arjuna was not a renunciant. And uh, nowhere does Krishna actually suggest directly that this is only a halfway house. He gives, gives him final, uh, uh, an ultimate solution to the problems of life. So um, I think Vedanta is already in the process of uh, acclimatizing itself to this new environment. Mm. Uh, Swami Vivekananda's famous quote that Vedanta has been hitherto limited to the hands of uh, monks and scholars and pundits in the mountains and forests. I'll bring Vedanta out from the mountains and forests and broadcast it Mm. in the cities of the world, which he did right here in Harvard. (laughs) So yes, this is an ongoing process, but it's uh, important, the point is important.
0: Thank you so much. And then, Shweta, you get the easy one, the problem of suffering, <laughs> justice in the world, and whether Vedanta really can say something about these enormous problems we face.
4: Um, uh, yeah, so I think the idea of suffering that uh, uh, Professor Rambachan brought up, um, there definitely does have to be an expansion of that understanding. Um, within the Advaita sort of uh, monastic world, um, not that it isn't there, but it's we're at a time where it has to be spelled out. Um, it needs to be nuanced. It needs to be looked at. It needs to be um, uh, viewed uh, for what it is, um, and not you know explained away in in a surface level sort of way. So, I, I do uh, I, I do agree with that a hundred percent. Can Vedanta provide uh, you know one to one solutions for every single form of suffering in the in the world? Um, I think Vedanta provides a perspective, but as far as solutions are concerned, I think a Vedantin can, can situate themselves together with the rest of the world to help and come up with, with mm. uh, ways that we can work together um, to tackle some of the sufferings that are, mm. that are very prevalent today in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I think that mm. kind of work can definitely be, mm. be done mm. and should be done today.
0: Thank you so much. And I would just uh, commend Anand for making the point several times that doing all of this at a divinity school is a wonderful opportunity uh, to think in the tradition, to think from outside, and bring these things together. Swami Tiagananda, our distinguished Swami in the middle there, uh, he and I are probably thinking of doing a course in the fall on Hindu spiritual ministries, I think a first for Harvard and, and one of the first times this has been done, but to bring together tradition and everyday problems. so. That will be coming probably in the fall. So for our audience, I would say, let's start with three questions from this various honored group here in the room. Uh, Brief questions, brief answers, uh, hopefully. And they don't have to be very technical. You don't have to know Sanskrit to ask a question. So just relax and ask. And I'll just call it. And I think, do they have to go to the microphone? Can the microphone move? Yes. Could move the microphone a little bit more toward the middle? It seems far away. OK, and I believe Philip has the first question. So you have to come up. We can hear you, but online they can't hear you unless you come to the mic. So brief questions, brief answers. Thank
7: you. <laughs> so Vedanta is based on knowledge. But Ram, Ramakrishna says in the Katamrita, only after you have received God's grace can you have a vision of him. Which seems like a very different statement. It sounds dangerously close to Luther's Sola Gratia. and. Uh, Actually, the word Vedanta occurs only 97 times in the Kathamrita, whereas the word grace occurs about twice as many times, and vision and visions occurs a a very large number of times. It seems that Ramakrishna and his lifestyle, his whole life, was very invested in having visions of God, dualist experiences, in spite of his nirvikalpa samadhi experience. Uh, which he did say was the mm. highest experiences on, but then he went back to these dualistic. Okay. So what, what is the status of grace in, I believe the Indian word would be Kripa mm. in, in Vedanta. What's the Vedanta okay. perspective?
0: On? So anyone can pick up the question. You don't all three have to answer all the questions, but let's start with Should Swami and then Shweta on this one. And then we'll There's actually on. a book
3: on this. I think Brian
0: Malkowski. Um, uh, Brad Malkowski.
3: Brian Malkowski. Right. The Role of Grace in Advaita Vedanta. Uh, so, I think in Shankara, the role of grace in Shankara. And he goes through all the uh, ways in which uh, Shankara has used the word for grace and the different uh, things that it, grace does in Advaita Vedanta. Two points here. One is, there's a, there are a vast number of paths. For example, I spoke about the that-oriented religions, God-oriented religions. So those are basically faith-based, devotion-based. The basis is faith, the method is devotion, and that requires grace. So grace plays a very important role in the dualistic, theistic, devotional religions. The, you would have to transform what grace means in Advaita. There is a role there too. I mean, I wish I could go into the details of this, but I'd recommend that book. Uh, Upanishads themselves say, the, uh, the who really realizes the Atman? The one whom the Atman chooses realizes the Atman. Now There you can see grace hidden there. The Atman chooses somebody to reveal itself. To the one which Atman chooses, the Atman reveals itself to that one. And Shankara comments there, so whom does Atman choose? The one who chooses the Atman. That means if you really want it, you're going to get it. I'll leave it at that.
0: OK, Shaita.
4: Um Yeah, so just to uh, tack on to that. Um, in Vedanta, many times, it's, it, God's grace is equated to an increase in, in wanting liberation or in mumukshutvam, as they say. That's like the direct manifestation of that. And um, that wanting to be liberated, of course, is is predicated on uh, sensitivity towards dukkham in life, which I think we can bring in what Dr. Rambachan was talking about, which then requires a very keen observation of what that dukkham actually is, in my own experience and others' experience. Um, and so I think that grace can be traced, again, I think just like what Swamiji is saying back into... Back to us. What what is it that we're looking for in our life? Um, yeah. So it, it manifests yeah. Yeah. again as that sort of desire to be liberated.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Um, Malini Shri Krishna has a question. So brief questions, brief answers, and you can move the mic. Don't feel shy.
6: Okay. <laughs> so 30 seconds I'll take to ask the question because. I think for me asking this question is not so much as getting an answer, but ensuring that we all think about these questions more deeply. Um, So as an Advaita scholar, as somebody who Advaita is the reason why I became a social worker, a community organizer, Advaita is the reason why race and caste disturb me so deeply, is because to see suffering is to recognize it as your own or otherwise to be separated from what your essence is. So the question I really wanna ask one is, Well, I constantly see that when I think of renunciation, I think of being able to escape so much of the suffering of witnessing other suffering and on a personal level, not necessarily like how it actually happens. And in the same case with Arjuna, right? Is he's on the battlefield, he would rather do anything except fight his family, but that is his duty. And so I understand that and keeping that in mind, what do you see is the responsibilities of um, monastics in the world today with the suffering that happens. Mm. And on a second level, much more identity focused, if we're looking at 200 million Dalits in India, or if we're looking at the fact that half the female population, that there's so much segregation in our communities. Like we are a very segregated country, mm. even if it doesn't appear so from sex to caste, especially these two areas. So, why has, um, Mm -hmm. I wonder why have our missions and orders not more aggressively fought against this segregation Mm -hmm. because they're on such a large, wide and prevalent scale.
0: Great. Um, So any of the four of you, so Anant, you're part of this too, um, give everyone a chance to speak. Any one or two of you want to take that up? Anant, do you want to go first? Just
5: make some quick comments. Thank you, it's an excellent question. We can talk for a very long time about but I think that the, the gist of what I want to say is, is this, that um, even when we have profound texts in the Vedanta and the Bhagavad Gita, for example, that, that we can certainly read and interpret the challenge all of the kinds of social and gender inequalities that you uh, identified the broad trend of exegesis has been to speak of oneness but but oneness that is somehow comfortable with social hierarchies the oneness is not the the, the metaphysics of oneness has not been used to challenge those social hierarchies and to to, to say that these are inconsistent with this with this vision, and we have to, especially when it comes to structural injustice. And this has been a place of my own deep learning from Christian liberation theology the issue of structural suffering yeah. and structural injustice, and how you can talk, you can so much spiritualize the notion of oneness that you disconnect it completely from social reality. So one world doesn't speak to the other world, and you're very comfortable in. In proclaiming a theology of oneness, and completely mm-hmm. turning away from all of those structures in society that don't, con- you know, that are completely contradictory, mm-hmm. um, like the problem of the uh, Dalits, the problem of patriarchy,
2: and, and other kinds.
5: Mm-hmm. of problems.
0: Mm-hmm. It Akshay, requires a further step. Actually, <laughs> you were taking notes. Did you want to say something on this? I uh, no, just I was just writing. Okay, books. Swami, briefly. Um,
3: in the new te- introduction to New Testament class, I think it, the class is held right here or in the other class there, yes. Um, we are right now talking about slavery and Christianity and how the Bible was used to, in some senses, to support uh, slavery and how it was used to fight against, uh, to protest against slavery. How going all the way back to Paul, uh, we find the roots of anti-Semitism. Uh, so, The point is that religions have this conservative side. They tend to go with the conservative section in society. That's one movement in religion. But there are also resources for change and betterment uh, of society in those very texts. So how does a black person read the Bible? So it's a very interesting discussion. One is you could reject the text altogether. Another is you could re- appropriate it, that it's, it's my text, and it does not mean what you want it to mean. It's the real, a better reading is this. Mm. So uh, we were talking about this. We had a dialogue with Suraj Yangde, a very noted Dalit scholar activist at the Kennedy School. And that's what I said to him, that uh, these resources are there, uh, whether the Gita or the Upanishads or the um, Advaita, different Vedanta traditions, they also belong to the Dalits. One way is to reject it. One way is to say that, no, this is the real meaning. We're talking about oneness. It should mean oneness in practice also in all these ways. Um, So that's where we had the discussion, if you remember. yeah.
0: Our time is limited. So I think um, what I'll do now is invite Vibhu, who is our master of online questions, and you can sneak in your own, to pose two questions maybe from those you've received. And then we'll close with one more question from in the room. So if somebody hasn't asked a question that and would like to ask, get yourself ready. So, Vibhu, would you, uh, two questions? Um, you could do just one, let people answer, and then do the second.
8: Thank you, everybody. I just um, received a couple of comments. Uh, one comment was directly to you, Shweta ji, about Swami Chinmayananda, uh, to your comment about him, you know, why Vedanta seems to be sitting away. But Swami Chinmayananda, so did Swami Vivekananda, came down and came and shared the knowledge. So shifting away from the 1980 to the iti, iti aspect. So that was one comment. But coming to your question, um, there's a gentleman by Shri Ji who, and this is for you, Swamiji, directly. How does Jivan Mukti apply to the followers of other philosophies?
3: How does Jivan Mukti apply to the followers of other philosophies? Um, That's a really big question actually. Mm Jivan Mukti, what the term is, being enlightened and yet being embodied in this body, in this life, and yet you know that you are Brahman. So until the death of this particular body, you continue in this state. And it's a wonderful state. Uh, You realize that you are the absolute and yet you are particularized. You appear as an individual Mm -hmm. in this world. Related to other philosophies, the way I understand it is, do other philosophies accept it? Uh, yes and no. There are a wide range of Vedanta philosophies which uh, do not accept Jivan Mukti, only Videha Mukti. That means uh, full enlightenment is possible only after the death of this particular body. Um, if I'm not wrong, Vishishtadvaita would be one of them. I'm not very sure. Would it accept Jivan Mukti? Only oh, uh,
0: reinterpreting it in a very different way. In a
3: different way, yes. So there are. Um, uh, schools of Vedanta and other Indian philosophies which do not accept Jivan Mukti. Mm. Advaita Vedanta does and I was actually surprised to discover Sankhya does. I, I would, wouldn't would have expected it, but Sankhya actually does ac- accept liberate living while liberated. Yeah,
0: okay. It's a big question. Yeah. Did you have another one? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Uh,
8: this is to Shweta Ji. Uh, can you please give us more information about equality in Vedanta with maybe respect to gender, religion, and also maybe caste differences?
4: So, these are, that's exactly the, you know, uh, part of, uh, that's exactly what we need to be discussing more today. Um, I think Malini's question speaks to that. And uh, as renunciates and uh, I mean, really speaking from the Vedanta that I've, I've understood, as far as knowledge is concerned, there's no difference really in what in a renunciates, you know, knowledge and uh, anyone else's knowledge. And so, yeah, there really has to be more discussion, not on behalf of those people who are marginalized. They're already discussing. Really, there has to be discussion amongst those who are not marginalized, who are privileged in 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 this structure um, and that too serious discussion with with results with effect I mean where where let's say a girl could go to a monastery and feel totally comfortable um, because there's rooms available for her or there's a place available for her to stay um, and same with a caste issue where where people who are extremely marginalized can go into an ashram and feel that I can study here and and there's there's nothing wrong so I think the discussion yes it has to it is being brought up by those who are marginalized, but but the the real mm. you know heavy discussion has to occur on the other side, um, where change can be made where everyone can now come into you know living this truth as we understand it, but also to be able to see it. Um, I think mm. yeah, I think the discussion has to begin there.
0: Thank you. Uh, so to keep my promise and to keep our promise to finish fairly quickly, one more question from the room from somebody who's not asked a question. Yes, sir. Come to the mic, please.
9: Thank you all for your wonderful presentations. The other day I went to a, a talk uh, on the, the the topic was reincarnation. And uh, there's something troubling about the, this, this notion that, that uh, well if if you did uh if you did things that were wrong in this life and you, and you didn't uh, get punished for it you will get uh you you will still uh, ha- have to reap the rewards of that you'll be born again and you may uh now and this is related to the all the questions that are re- uh, coming up about suffering we see people suffering we see people uh, all the time uh, you know uh, not not as well off as others uh, it It's troubling to then think mm-hmm. that, well, you know this is they're reaping, they're reaping the uh, mm-hmm. the fruits of a, of a previous life, which doesn't seem right somehow okay. and and yet uh, seems consistent with this notion of karma. and i I would like to okay. see uh, how you might uh, address this. Uh, Contradiction.
0: Quick reply. I'm sure you haven't spoken yet. Do you want Mm. to explain rebirth and reincarnation after this? After Swami, so Swami, first
3: and then. I just recommend a book, Arthur Herman, um, the problem of evil in Indian philosophy. So there he considers different answers to the question why there is suffering in the world, and then 23 different options, and finally he comes to karma, rebirth, and reincarnation, and he shows with all its defects. He has a whole chapter on these questions you ask. With all its defects, it's still the most rational explanation that we can offer at this point. One clue, if you find it troubling, think of the alternative. If that is not true, karma and rebirth are not true, what are the alternatives? It's God who's making doing everything, um, that is, God is responsible for all the misery in the world? That's not a nice option. Or it's all accidental, there's no logic to it, no reason to it? That's also, then let's not do philosophy or theology. Okay. Yeah.
0: Sure,
2: did you wanna? Uh, Yes, thinking about the karma and suffering from a different perspective. Uh, this perspective is different in the sense that a person who is suffering is currently suffering less, in sense, with respect to what he has to suffer for his past many lives, or like in future in many lives. So uh, there is a notion uh, that uh, if a person is suffering for a nail, in fact, he was going to suffer a lot. So it is in the, in the reduced pact. not being op- op- optimistic right now, but trying to make a point here that maybe if like suffering is there, that's the fact. So how uh, we can understand it and like then tackle it is something I was thinking about.
0: Oh, wonderful. I think one thing that this conversation proves that it was a very fast two hours and that we will definitely have to have more of these in the future. I'd like to conclude by just a couple of words of thanks. Again, thanks to the development office, thanks to facilities, thanks to all those who put together this beautiful arrangement in a very difficult time where things were changing by the hour in the last few days. So thanks to everyone who made this possible. Thanks to you, our our studio audience, as they say, for you who came and um, paid such good attention and gave kind of a direct human quality. And for all of those who are online, I would say both thank you for listening and for spreading the word. This will be online soon, and everybody else can watch it. But once the uh, coronavirus crisis is over, those of you who are not able to be here tonight, you must come to campus and be in our midst. And I close finally by thanking our distinguished panelists, our three monastics, and Anand Rambachan for wonderful presentations. (laughs)